Hello and welcome to episode 109 of Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast, telling stories from the LAFC community match by match, fan by fan, story by story. This week, Chris, Christian, and I are going to be joined once again by our opponent correspondent from Stumptown Footy, none other than Sam Spiller, who's going to be joining us to preview our upcoming match versus the Portland Timbers. But before that, why don't we go ahead and kick around our opening season W at the bank and extend a good evening to my fellow co-hosts, Christian Aparicio and Chris Sines. What's going on, Jonathan? What's going on, Chris? In a good mood. Obviously, we had a victory and it was so glorious. Glad to be able to witness Carlos at his best and the team looked not too shabby, I would say. Absolutely. Just talking about the match, we'll dive into it a little bit more, but it was exciting. It was exciting to see the players, how they interacted, seeing some of these newcomers, Ilya Sanchez, Kellen Acosta, Maxime Kripo. It was really good to see these players come out and represent on the opening match. And it's going to be great to have Sam back on. It'll be interesting to talk about the things going on in Portland right now and just the total vibe of what's going on up north. Um, and I'm just happy for another week, happy that the season is back and that uh, we had another opening day victory. And as always, my name is Jonathan Reimer. You are listening to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. You can find us on all your social media platforms at LAFCS2S. And if you'd ever like to come on the show, be a guest, share your black and gold story with us, we'd love to hear from you. All right, gentlemen, so before we dive too deep into our opening day victory, I have something I want to say. Christian, congratulations to you and the rest of the LAO family, Los Angeles Oridionales, officially an ORSG of the 3252. Congratulations, amigo. Oh, thank you. And a huge shout out to Francisco, Raul, the rest of the guys. They've been putting in a lot of the work. I'm not going to take credit for a lot of the things that they've been doing, showing up, TFOs. I contribute in my own way. It's It's been a long handful of years putting a lot of the effort, and it finally came to fruition, so... Cheers to that, and thank you for the congratulations. I know that they listen, and shout out to them. Shout out to being part of the 3252 officially. I know there are a lot of prospective SGs who are wondering why them and not us. You know, to be honest, throughout the course of the past couple seasons, COVID has really put a damper on the 3250 Council and their ability to meet and get planning and things executed. We finally have a framework in place that was ratified and adopted at the beginning of February in order to help bring new SGs into the 3252. LAO is the first of many to come, I am sure, as we start to grow the 3252 under the new leadership of Casey and Su Jin, our president and vice president, who are really going to start to work with some of these other groups in order to show them the path into the 3252. It is by all means not a closed door. We want everyone to be involved in the North End and every one of those SGs that's not currently part of the leadership to eventually find a way to come and join it in some capacity. And and I'm very ecstatic to know that there is going to be more positive news along these lines in the future. Uh, for the rest of you out there, please be patient, be diligent, keep putting in the work in the stands, keep selling those 3252 memberships, keep growing your numbers. Good things will happen to those who put in the work and LAO is, is certainly a prime example of that. Speaking of which, 3252 memberships have gone on sale. Please, pretty please, cherry on top. That is the best 35 bucks you can spend to support the North End. You get a scarf, you get a pin, 
you get a 15% discount at HQ, which is 5% more than your season ticket holder discount will get you. That alone will pay itself back by the end of the season. Plus that money goes directly into both the community efforts and the in-stadium efforts of the 3252. So if you love TIFOs and you love seeing people in the community get helped, that's exactly where that $35 goes. I would wholeheartedly encourage everyone out there to go out and purchase a 3252 membership. If you are a member of an SG, please include your SG in your 3252 membership questionnaire. You fill it out. That is how we can track how many people are in the various SGs. We obviously cannot get ticketing information from the club, and it's hard to sit there on a capo stand and count how many people are in the North End in each group. So the best way to grow the numbers of your SG on paper is to purchase those 3252 tickets. And that is something we would really like to see grow and the best way for us to figure out which SGs are being as active as possible. Speaking of TIFOs, as we get into pre-match going into our opening day, we had a couple wonderful things happen. The first of which was our honorary Falconer. A man, a myth, a legend, none other than Jordan C. Harvey in his first day of retirement in his post-playing career. A little bit of a sad trombone on that one because I think everybody in the black and gold family loves themselves from Jordan C. Harvey. But as a surprise to all, he came out as the honorary Falconer, got to release Ollie and got his proper cap nod from everyone in the bank here in the Jordan Harvey chance coming out of the North end was, was a beautiful thing and it could not go to a better person. We had a touching black history month singing of the black national anthem as well too, which was wonderful. And then for all mis amigos Latinos, mis amigos Mexicanos out there, El Chente himself, Volver. We saw the TIFO go up. What were your guys' thoughts on all the pregame festivities? That it was very appropriate, especially with Chente recently passing. Um, glorious Tifo. It, it was, you know, with the mariachi. It's hard to describe to those that didn't grow up listening to him. It's almost like it's like a more sentimental Frank Sinatra that, that ends parties, but also brings, I feel like, your uncle's feelings in a, in a very sad way at the end of parties. But also just a lot of the, the songs are about love, feeling, breaking through, some hardship and uh, it was nice to have him honored in that way via the TIFO and you know the detail was extraordinary so again 3252 all the tracers all the painters the the scaffolding getting that up it was very well coordinated and a sight to see for the entire stadium absolutely the TIFO amazing it definitely started the season off with a bang just the art the colors all of it it's amazing and you see it on a global scale when it gets recognized. And I think that it just is a big uh, congratulations and kudos to the 3252 and all of those that were there and put in the work and the hours to create the design, paint the TIFO and be there to set it up uh, pre-match. As for Jordan Harvey, you know, this was really a first time for all of us to have a, a player recognized for their time here with LAFC and to have a player retired with the black and gold, we've all been fans of Jordan Harvey and everything that he had done on and off the pitch in this community. So to see him get recognition and to have the opportunity to to spend that time with his family in front of the bank, it was a nice feeling, you know, and, and we just we really appreciate Jordan and how he has helped build this culture, build this fan base, build this club 
And uh, I look forward to seeing how Jordan is going to still continue to be a member of this community. I have no doubt that there are things on the horizon that are going to involve Jordan and his family. And I hope to see them at the bank again real soon. Yes, Jordan and Kim, big fans of the show. Thank you for supporting us throughout the past four years. And thank you for everything you've done throughout the last five years for LAFC. And we sincerely hope, be it in Las Vegas or be it at Bank of California Stadium or at the Performance Center or out there with the LAFC SoCal youth or, or somewhere else that somehow we still get Jordan Harvey involved in the Black and Gold family somehow. And hopefully we still get to see uh, Miss Kim Caldwell Harvey out there as well to sing in that Canadian national anthem. So why don't we go ahead and dive into the game? And it did not take long for the fireworks. In the 29th minute, we had the first of three goals by Carlos Vela. He quickly doubled up on that six minutes later. We go into the halftime, 2-0 lead, two goals by Kraklitos himself. The second half started right where the first half left off with yet another Carlos Vela goal. This one, for the first time in almost 16 months, 14 months, since we had Carlos Vela hitting a corner from the top of the box and being able to pick that curler out, find the back of the net, give us that 3-0 lead, give us a hat trick, and we were able to coast through some mild fireworks into an easy 3-0 victory. So... Gentlemen, there is a lot to unpack in this game. You've got Carlos playing for a contract. You have the addition of, I believe, six new players to the team who hit the pitch for the first time. You have three amazing goals. You had a stellar defensive performance. We had a little bit of fisticuffs and some scrum throughout the course of this game. So of all of those things, what stands out to you the most in this first game of the season? I think the first thing that sticks out to my mind, the low hanging fruit was the performance of the new players and the presence that they made on the pitch and how all the players worked together. And we got the goals, the high scoring game that we had. I think that that's probably one of the first things that everyone's going to notice is how the team played together with a new set of, of roster names. And I found it interesting too, to find that Mahala had gotten the start over Chicho Arango. I think that that was an unexpected twist in the starting 11. And maybe that is something that we will be expecting to see for more matches to come. Having Chicho kind of fill in as that like Adama Diomande role where he is like the super sub with the heavy presence on the front. I think it'll happen maybe for another game or so. I think he he suffered a knock in preseason. So he's, he's still getting his fitness. He's behind on fitness. I think that's the the main reason. I I foresee him being the starting number nine, maybe after two, three games. But I'll let you finish on Apoko. I think you you were going to make a good point about him and how he performed. The knock had actually slipped my mind. You're right. Now that you mention it, I do recall the the report. But uh, no, it was was great to see Apoku out there and doing his thing. And, you know, he was definitely a player that was exciting to watch last season and leading up to when he had gotten hurt with his loan spell with the lights. It was someone that we were all looking forward to. He is a dynamic player that brings a lot to the pitch. A couple of other things to note about the match, the hat trick that Vela had, that was the seventh hat trick in LAFC history. And that was Carlos Vela's third actual hat trick in his career. His previous two hat tricks were in 2019. One was against San Jose and one was also against Colorado. And that was the game against Colorado was the one where he broke the MLS record for goals in a single season. And that was Carlos now had over 60 goals in MLS regular season play. And I do think that there was some Twitter comments out there. I think Vince had posted that Taylor Twelman 
during the Galaxy game had made comments about how Carlos was in negotiation, contract negotiations. And so maybe this was the kind of performance that the club felt that they needed to see from him in order to potentially engage in those conversations sooner than the expiration of his six-month contract. And we might be seeing something coming up soon. I don't think anyone anticipates Vela leaving halfway through our season. And so the talks of an 18 month, year and a half to two, two and a half year contract extension seem almost obvious at this point. Like there's no way he's barring injury or a terrible performance. There's, there's just no way he's leaving. Sorry, Christian, I cut you off. Oh, not at all. What I was going to say is on the Carlos Vela front, he's playing for a new contract. So he's going to be motivated. I think not only is he trying to erase the last two years in terms of him not being able to play, one was for his wife's pregnancy health decision and didn't know exactly what COVID would be like for that. It was an unknown. And then the following year he got hurt. He was hurt most of the season. So I think with the contract coming up mid season, he, even, even if he, you know, knock on wood, he does stay with us, but he needs to show what his worth is even for Europe. Right. So he's going to be motivated. And I think it's only going to help him leverage his contract with us versus Europe. So either way, we're going to get good six months out of him. Hopefully it's like within four months, three months, we, we can get get this all knocked out. But he's going to be very motivated. I think him, Chicho, and, and Brian, I think we're going to have an explosive front three. And we might be rivaling in terms of goal total, what we did in 2019. And defensively, we might be similar because I think we're just more solid. And I'll, I'll speak more on my thoughts of the game after you make your comment on Vela, Jonathan. I don't think the club want the cloud of Vela's contract hanging over this season. I think they want to get this done and get it done soon. I do think they wanted to see what kind of form he was going to be in to start the season. And any questions anyone could have possibly had about Vela's form going into the season, those questions were all answered in 55 minutes at the bank. That is all it took to see vintage Carlos Vela. You know, he is the one who has the pass down to Acosta in the corner that creates the penalty that he converts. He collects a beautiful ball from Sifu mid-pitch, shows that he still has pace, shows that he still has the ability to muscle off Abubakar, who is not a small person, right? And he managed to keep the ball and still find the back of the net one-on-one versus the keeper with Abubakar doing everything he could possibly do to try and tear Vela down. He's pushing on him. He's shoving on him. I mean, it was very close to being a pen itself a second time over on Abubakar had, had Vela not converted that. And then the third goal is the most classic Vela shot, the shot that we wondered where it had gone as we went a whole season without seeing Vela take that spot at the top right corner of the box and just fire left and find that back post, something we expect him to do more often than not. And yet, frankly, had not seen for some time to get all of that from Vela in the course of one game. I mean, there's nothing left you can ask for. He was defensively stellar in what limited defensive you know responsibilities he has in his position. He was still there defensively more often than not throughout the course of the game. You know, he showed that he can put an assist through on a dime. He showed that he can convert penalties. He showed that he can go one-on-one and, and run half the pitch and score. He showed he still got that amazing curler in his locker. Like, what, what more could you ask for from the guy? And he came out and walked the entire stadium, thanked every single corner of the bank, 
came over, accepted his man of the match scarf in front of the 3252 and thanked the 3252. That's it. That, that checks every single box you could possibly want checked for Vela. Pay him his money, to quote a famous man. We also, guys, to shift the conversation a little bit, I don't want to talk about the greatest player in the history of LAFC for this entire episode, though he might be worth it. We saw four new players get the start for LAFC. We got Cripo, Escobar, who played the full 90. Cripo played, of course, the full 90 as well, too. We saw Kellen Acosta, and we saw a number of players come in off the bench. Sanchez, Elias Sanchez, uh, would have been the other starter, who also went the full 90 as well, too. And then coming in off the bench, we saw Donald Henry. We saw Ryan Hollingshead. Both make their debuts as well, too. So what were your thoughts of the new guys, and did any of them stand out to you? Unfortunately, Danielle and Ryan Hollingshead both only had played, I think it was five or six minutes total. So you weren't really able to get a feel for them and and how they jived with the club or with the players, especially too at that point, it being three nil. It's not a fair evaluation for the players. If I may interject for just a moment, how many times last year did we sub in a player to come in and see out the garbage minutes in a game and keep a shutout alive. And that player who we subbed in made a mistake on a wing and let the cross come in, didn't mark their man at the back. And we ended up capitulating goals late from those substitutions. I mean, you might as well just call out Raheem Edwards in, in, in what you're doing, man, you can't be just sitting here and you know, how many times have we called in a player? Okay. It's Marco Farfan and Raheem Edwards. I'm pointing (laughs) a finger at you, (laughs) but no, you're right. That's a very true statement. So I guess you shouldn't undervalue their presence in those minutes. So for the simple fact that they did their job and they didn't mess it up, they did very well. But I would be interested to see how they are on a uh, a full match basis. Honestly, the, the players that I felt made the biggest impact that had started were Maxime Carpeau, Elie Sanchez, and um, Escobar. Not to say Kellen Acosta didn't make a huge impact, but Escobar, Sanchez, and Cripo were the ones that stood out to me. They were just outstanding performances. And I remember in the first half of the match, there was a, a, a ball that Escobar had tracked back into. It was almost like the corner. And, you know, he's holding off a defender and he's got the ball on his right foot. And then he just gives like a backheel pass and it's to a wide open LAFC player. And I was just like, wow, this is the kind of play and ability that, it just is that is beautiful, well-rounded, uh, alert football, and it's it's exciting and entertaining to watch. Now, Kellen Acosta did have the pass that struck Abubakar's elbow to get the penalty and get LAFC's first goal. Not to say that he wasn't all over the pitch making the kind of plays that perhaps Sanchez and Escobar were, and Cripol really only faced one shot actually literally only faced one shot throughout the course of the game but I think in the 58th minute he might have done enough to to earn our praise yeah absolutely and that's kind of what I was referring to in terms of I mean you see uh Kripo come out and make it make his presence known when it came to the a little bit of chippy altercation that was seen and you could see that Colorado was getting frustrated because they were down at that point yeah in, in this new era of Dola ball although the formation be the same I feel like the feeling and watching the team is way different. It isn't pedal to the metal the entire time. There was very little balls in behind one-on-one situations within our defense. I think it was much more coordinated defensively. And I think we were willing to not have the ball at times, play safe, and, and kind of reset 
and get men behind the ball and mark up. And it, and it was different. It was different than what we were used to. And it felt different in the stadium too. I feel like, and not in a negative way, it was just like the energy was just different because I think people weren't used to seeing LAFC playing this way. But what I would say is I feel like we were much more effective. I think it took less shots to score the amount of goals we did. And we had some other sitters that we could have scored. So I think we're, we're going to, the team's going to be a little bit more efficient, a little bit more organized. I think we're not going to become disjointed, but we have a handful of players all up top with like 1v1 or 2v2 on the back. And I think that's good. Uh, Escobar is, you know, head and shoulders above what we've had in the back, in the back on the right side. And then Cheeky, I feel like has raised his level. And I, and I think it's, it's because he's looking over shoulder with Ryan Hollingshead there that's going to pressure him. But also, I think he's learning some things from Escobar. So I think my observations defensively and goalkeeping wise, I think it's just miles ahead of any of the teams that we fielded before. Maxime Cripo, he didn't really have to make any saves, but I think a lot of it has to do with him being able to organize the back line, really being vocal and uh, making sure that people were marked up. And I think there was one shot that was blocked by Murillo's head maybe one or two times and they took him out of the game. But I think he was in those positions because of the help of the keeper. And then there was a couple instances where he had to come out and either grab the ball or punch it out. A lot of authority. It was almost like I had no doubt that he was going to get to the ball because he was going to bulldoze over whoever that was in front of him. So it's just it's just different. I just feel defensively way more comfortable. And offensively, I think there's going to be a little bit more freedom and there's going to be more balls in behind, which Bob didn't really do. It was just always this passing in the 18 yard box into some sort of pass into the goal. But I think now this is going to cater a lot to Rayita, who is, has that speed to get in behind and a poku and also cater to Chicho's back to the goal kind of um, skill set. And I don't have to speak about Vela because Vela is going to do Vela things, but I, I just think we are going to be slightly different, not possess the ball, as much, but I think we're going to possess the ball more efficiently and defensively. We're going to be way more steady and keep the ball in front of us and give up less kind of breakaway goals against us. I think tactically, you could look at it on paper and say we had four defenders, three midfielders, three strikers. It was a 4-3-3. But this to me did not feel like a Bob Bradley 4-3-3 where all of your midfield and especially your outside mids are bombing forward the whole time. I just didn't see that. I saw a lot more of Sanchez and Acosta sitting back, which to me kind of felt more like a 4-2-3-1, where they were kind of rotating who was the striker between Raito and Opoku or Rongo later when he came in, with Vela and Sifu sitting slightly behind the two of them, and Sifu really playing the offensive-minded midfielder, the playmaker, obviously, yes, to assists on the night, so we could see that was successful. Vela... Obviously got forward for the second goal, but, you know, for the most part, they were kind of rotating who was the one guy up top. And it felt a lot like a 4-2-3-1 from my vantage point. I, you know, I got to go back and, and watch a little more footage on the game. But it felt to me like that really helped our outside backs out in both Palacios and Escobar because they weren't like the Bob Bradley system expected to run all the way down the pitch and run all the way back constantly, which is something we seem to always get caught in last year that our outside backs were too far forward. And I really felt like Acosta and Sanchez specifically playing a more defensive minded midfield role did such a fantastic job of closing down things that came forward and having an outside back there to defend them that we really didn't need them bombing forward as much. And I thought that was obviously incredibly effective. Now, 
how much can you really take away against a Colorado side that is depleted in personnel from where they were last year is coming three days off of a zero degree snow globe CCL all or nothing loss in which they went down in PKs to, to communicaciones. So the team is just coming off a very hard fought loss. So what exactly has been the test for LAFC so far? In fact, how much did, did Colorado really put out? It looked like a lot of tired legs out there for Colorado. So it didn't look like they were really pressing us too much in the back. So I don't know how much of it I can put on defensive dominance versus offensive ineptitude of Colorado, but we know this Colorado team is a good team. Look that they were the number one team in the Western conference standings last year. They've lost a couple pieces. Sure. But they still have a pretty young, talented roster in many areas. There were, you know, like, I don't feel like captain Jack really had a great game at all. Their Acosta was virtually non-existent throughout the course of the game. Obviously, Abubakar did not have a great game, uh, giving up a pen, allowing Vela to get the better of him on, on that second goal. And I forget who it was that was marking Vela on his last goal, but not a particularly stellar performance there either. So who knows? Who knows how much we can take from this? But we do know we took three points from this, and I will take that all day assuredly. Fantastic stuff. The seventh hat trick in LAFC history, as Chris mentioned. We are now 5-0. and oh in season starters to me there was really only one moment in which I was disappointed in the team and that happened after the 90th minute when I thought Moose for sure was going to make it 4-0 looked like he was wide open one-on-one with the keeper but uh, just could not get the shot over the boot uh, and ends up getting stuffed there in in what really should have been a 4-0 victory for us but if we're talking about our fifth striker missing a shot in garbage time when we were already up three, nothing. It's a pretty good game, pretty good game all in all looking back. So uh, before we dive into our opponent correspondence section, boys, do you have anything else you'd like to touch on from opening night at the bank? I just wanted to touch actually on the analysis that you had just said about looking at the whole picture of Colorado. And I had listened in on ESPN FC where Sebastian Salazar was talking with Hercules Gomez and they were talking about the evaluation of both Los Angeles teams and how they played over the weekend. And Hercules Gomez actually went and said that the Galaxy beating NYCFC was a better victory than us beating Colorado for the same reasons. And I actually want to say I don't agree. If you look at the body of work and how NYC, it's not like NYCFC didn't have a game either. You know, they had a game... Colorado had a game that they had. So the, the amount of fatigue and legs. And I just think that if you go back and you rewatch the Colorado LAFC game and you go back and rewatch the galaxy versus NYCFC, you see that the galaxy were not able to put together much offense. And the fact that they held back the NYCFC team that probably had fatigued legs and were also looking to just get through the opening day and get back to New York I think that it really is an unfair assessment for Hercules Gomez to sit here and say that the Galaxy win is a better win than LFC. When you look at the entire body of work and you look at everything that LFC had put together with all of the new players and personnel and things like that, and I think that it's something to be said that, you know, you shouldn't be sitting here trying to justify why LAFC won. The fact is LAFC played a complete game in all three phases. And, I mean, we're sitting here and we're saying the low point was the fact that we didn't score a fourth goal. 
you know? Well, look, I'll comment on that. I think what Hercules Gomez is saying, like where they ended up and what their expectations were or how they performed last year compared to this year, they did better than expected. So I think LAFC, for whatever reason, and people were doubting this, and I think smart people that understood what uh, John Thornton was doing in the front office, we were one of the favorites from Las Vegas right before the season started. The Galaxy doesn't have that, right? So I think he's saying, in my mind, that from what they were expected and then competing with NYCFC and being able to pull out a win, maybe that's what he's trying to say, that there was a better win. I agree with you. The only reason they were probably able to perform as well against them is because they they had a short week and they did win their match. They had to travel. But in the end, I didn't see them being better than LAFC at this point. But I think they're going to be better than last year. And I think yeah, it's just a low bar for them, right? They haven't made the playoffs for four years out of five. So I think them just being in a conversation is going to be better. And at the same time, they're trying to you know get YouTube clicks and all that. I think speaking about the Galaxy is going to pump up the league more than usual. It's just the real thing. LAFC and LA, LA Galaxy or LAFC and Galaxy need to need to be in the conversation for the league to be better. So um, I think he's just a contrarian. Speaking of shenanigans i would like to also touch on the kevin baxter tweet about the uh, attendance or lack thereof you know where he zoomed in and showed the away section stands and talked about how it wasn't it was empty 30 minutes in and then of course there was the rage of all sorts of lafc fans that were asking and waiting for him to show a similar picture in the 30th minute at the galaxy game And of course, he didn't post it, but there was a great comparison Rich made where he said that uh, Kevin Baxter's cousin is Debbie Downer from SNL. And uh, it was uh, it's actually very entertaining for any of you that have Twitter. I would highly recommend you guys go on and look at the thread and all the people that are just hammering Baxter about how it's uh, favored reporting and it's not neutral and he's not doing he's not doing his job title for the Los Angeles Times any kind of justice. Yeah, I, I mean, if I didn't know any better, I would swear Kevin Baxter works for TMZ Sports, not for the Los Angeles Times, which throughout most of my childhood was a reputable source of information. And I just don't think Kevin Baxter presents himself with the air and reputation I would expect of an entity like the Los Angeles Times. I, I just don't think it's professional what he's doing. And it's clearly biased. It's clearly salacious. It's lowbrow. And I just think we as a sporting community, as a Los Angeles community, deserve better than Kevin Baxter. The guy's put in his dues. He's every right to be a Galaxy fan if he wants to be a Galaxy fan and see things through those glasses, but not in his professional sense. You know, I think there should be some more professionalism from him in that regard. And we haven't seen it for five years. I don't know why we would expect to see it now. Maybe his pockets are being greased elsewhere. Maybe, you know, he's motivated monetarily somehow. Maybe there's there's something else going on that's influencing him that we don't know about. But it, it is clearly biased information. And, well, not a person that I am particularly fond of. Well, I mean, we do know that he co-hosts the Corner of the Galaxy podcast once a week. So, of course, he is a fan of the Galaxy, and it's blatant and obvious. But you would think that he would try to find something that would hold a little bit more water than the attendance. Like, if you're trying to compare apples to apples when it goes to a Galaxy game and attendance, like, it, 
it, that's like one of the worst things to try and do because it's going to be so easy for anyone, any naysayer to look at any galaxy game attendance for any of their home matches and say, why, why would you pick a topic like that? You would think you'd want to pick something better. Well, I think a lot of that has to do with the information that came out right before LAFC's match in that Carson had sold out the first game of the season. So I think Baxter was expecting the digs to be completely filled and it wasn't at all. So, you know, maybe he was expecting that to motivate Carson fans to come out. Maybe that was part of what he was doing was trying to fill his own stadium with that. But I just don't understand how the man continues to get a press pass to attend games at Bank of California stadium, the way he behaves, he should be up in the away section. That's the demeanor in which he carries himself. But moving there, there on, there was room there for him last last week. Yeah, with well, plenty of space, plenty of space in that Colorado section with their five fans for him to have, have gone up there and, and had plenty of room to, to spread out. Maybe have a little laptop next to him. Could have had some of those Trejos tacos in the other seat next to him. Speaking of people who are the complete opposite of Kevin Baxter, uh, we are going to go ahead and kick it to our opponent correspondent section, and we are about to bring on a person that has all the class that Kevin does not. So, folks, we'll be right back after this short break with our opponent correspondent section featuring Sam Spiller of Stumptown Footy in order to preview our upcoming batch versus the Timbers. Hi, guys. My name is Jaime Camille, and you're listening to the Shoulder to Shoulder podcast. Joining us is our opponent correspondent to represent the Portland Timbers, a returning act to Shoulder to Shoulder. We have none other than Sam Spiller. You can follow him at Samich923. Sam joins us from Stumptown Footy. You can follow them at Stumptown Footy. For SB Nation, he covers both the Portland Timbers and the Thorns. Sir, welcome back to Shoulder to Shoulder. Thanks for having me. I was looking forward to that opening. It did not disappoint. I <laughs> I appreciate it. Thanks for having me back on. We all look since... forward to Jonathan's openings. They're all very, very, very good. The hype gets me ready. I'm like, okay, yeah, we're in this. <laughs> you know, I mean, you got to get that adrenaline going. It's late yeah. at night. We've all had a long work day. You know, we got to yeah. get, get fired up to talk about some LAFC Portland Timbers. So before we dive too far into the LAFC Timbers lineup, why don't you just go ahead, plug a little bit about yourself and where you come to us from? Yeah. So like you said, I'm writing for Stumpton Footy. I think this is my fourth or fifth full season writing for them. You know, I kind of took over kind of like the main Timbers beat over the past year. So yeah, putting out match recaps and sometimes find me on the Twitter spewing 240 characters and nonsense yeah and some analysis pieces you have like a weekly kind of like recap of like how the game was kind of like a different kind of recap for things all on you know stumptonfooty.com for sp nation on twitter too you can find me like at sandwich 923 try to keep it relevant entertaining as much <laughs> as i can for the timbers it's been you know a pretty wild couple of years for, for covering the timbers kind of as a team it's been you know kind of encouraging to kind of be able to get back into the stadium that was kind of the big thing for me personally over the past year when they started reopening press boxes and letting fans come back into the stadium it's been nice to kind of you know reestablish myself at the games um, especially through last year's playoff run but um yeah it's it's definitely a fun team to cover and you know i'm excited for what potentially this year holds for them you mentioned the the off season. Can you tell us about the preparation coming into the season? Uh, what what you heard? Were you able to have access to the club? A little bit. Like I think there was a couple pieces of news that I was able to break. You know, a week or two before, like the Timbers resigned their right back Jose Carlos Van Ranken on a, a loan deal. We we're sometimes footy was able to break that news about a week in advance, just you know through having context and access to like the club. So little things like that have been kind of cool. As with any MLS team, off season access is always very sparse. Um, they didn't broadcast any of their preseason games when they were down training in Tucson, Arizona. 
you know, we were able to have press conferences and access to players for the preseason tournament they had a couple of weeks ago. So it's been, you know, a little bit tougher to cover. It's because it must have been like a trickle of news as far as players comings and goings. It, the interesting part is that it's been a pretty short off season for the Timbers. I think the players had, I think, two or three weeks off after MLS Cup, and then they reported right back in. And then they're like, okay, we're getting right back into it. It's been a quick turnaround for the team and a quick turnaround for covering it. I think especially after something as, you know, emotional as the way that uh, MLS Cup ended last year, it definitely made it, you know, we needed some time to kind of recover before we kind of rev things back up as far as covering it again. All right. So you got a chance to spill the beans about a new signing, but perhaps you could spill us in on some of the stuff that has happened throughout the course of this off season. So catch our fans up on who's in and who's out for the Portland Timbers and part of yeah. my terrible funds. So on, <laughs> I love them. <laughs> so, so on the whole, um, honestly, this Timbers team, not a whole ton has changed. They had two pretty big departures. The first one was Steve Clark, their goalkeeper. He left as a free agent, signed with Houston. Um, that was just, I think, according to the club, just a matter of money. Clark wanted more money than the Timbers were willing to give. That's a significant loss because Clark had been a kind of an unsung hero for the back line. His shot stopping had been very good. And, you know, anytime you anchor a team in, in, in net that makes it to MLS Cup, you're doing something right. And you must be some kind of performance. That was kind of a, a big loss on the field. Another big loss has been a staple for the Timbers for the past almost decade now. Um, and Diego Valeri, he left the Timbers to go rejoin his boyhood team, uh, Club Lanús, down in Argentina. It was an emotional departure. Valeri is a bona fide Timbers legend, and there is going to be a statue of him in front of Providence Park someday. But it was, you know, it was on the back of an emotional, heartbreaking loss of MLS Cup. Him leaving as well was a really big emotional kind of impact for, for Timbers fans and for me, because there are a lot of fans... Valeri was the reason that they got into the Timbers, the reason that they cared about the club, the reason they loved the club. I could spend literally an entire podcast talking about the impact that he's had for the Timbers on and off the field, but his loss was definitely more of an emotional one. His production on field had kind of diminished as 2021 went along, but his departure was kind of the end of an era. Players who were still here, Sebastian Blanco was able to be re-signed. It was kind of looking a little dicey over the winter of whether he would re-sign or not, but he wound up re-signing on a Pretty team-friendly deal, a designated player deal that could be signed down to re- resume more, to open up more U22 slots. Um, and the other big addition that the Timber signed was uh, David Ayala, Argentinian central midfielder as a U22 initiative player. Young player, 19, you know, projects really well, has like a pretty high upside. Other than that, there haven't been a ton of moves for the Timbers. This is by and large the same team that made it to MLS Cup 2021. The same engine room with Diego Chara and Christian Paredes, same forward line, same attacking line, same central defensive pairing that they've been riding with. So, you know, probably due to the shortened nature of their offseason, they didn't make a whole ton of moves and they didn't feel like they needed to. They felt like they had a good team. They felt like they had the horses to kind of be right back in the thick of things again. So they decided to, you know, ride with their guys. We were talking about on the field stuff. I know that there has been some chatter and maybe some emotions around the team with some of the off the field handlings. Uh, Did you want to touch on some of those things and how it's affecting the supporters of fans and front office and the interaction and whether or not it's affecting the team at all and the play on the, on the field. Yeah, you can't really talk about the, the 2022 offseason without kind of mentioning it. I'm not going to go into too many details. There's much better <laughs> reporters out there that you can read, like at The Athletic, like Sam Stagecall, Meg Lenahan. One of my, my colleagues who I work with, Ryan Clark, at the local Portland outlet, The Oregonian. He has a great many pieces on kind of what's been going on with the Timbers. But the, the broader strokes is that, you know, the actions that may or may not have been taken 
by the front office and the outcomes has had an impact on supporters, especially in the wake of, you know, some of the news that came out around the thorns back in the fall. It kind of, it's felt like it's similar situations kind of stacking on each other that has the result is it's had a lot of supporters kind of have their trust in the club kind of shaken, the, the trust in the club to make decisions that put humans first. Some people question whether that the organization can still do that. The impact that that's having on the supporters is, look, there was a home opener last weekend for the Timbers. Normally that's a circle your calendar, everyone plan around it in Penn. And I'm not sure of the exact attendance numbers, but the stadium didn't look quite all the way full. Definitely like there was a few empty seats with folks showing up. The, the Timbers Army just declines to do their normal TIFO presentation to start of the game in lieu of or as a result of some of the things that had happened. So, you know, it's had kind of like an emotional impact as far as kind of like the enthusiasm on the club is kind of down, which is a bummer because this is a team that came just one penalty shootout away from winning MLS Cup last season. And it's just a real shame that that's kind of been the thing that's kind of colored it and actions of certain individuals may have had that they may or may not have taken have kind of impacted sort of this. So that that's kind of been the biggest impact that it's kind of had as a kind of increase, you know, it's kind of felt like it's just been bad vibes all around, like, like for the off season, it'll be interesting to see as the season develops, how much that impacts fans moving forward. And if that starts to have a material impact on the players on the field, because as of now, as of just, you know, one game in definitely some more time, but during that one game, definitely Providence Park was as loud as I've heard it. So on the field, it definitely seems like the players are still getting that same level of support for the players. At least it seems like that enthusiasm is still very high. Shifting gears a little bit to the season so far, the uh, home opener, I know you touched on it a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about the play on the field that you saw against New England in the 2-2 tie? And of course, the newly appointed designated player Yimi Chara, who uh, has been with the team for a couple of seasons now, uh, and that amazing bicycle kick to uh, tie everything up. Yeah, there's just something about Colombian players and bicycle kicks in Providence Park. It's crazy. Um, Darren Espria hit one last year, and then I didn't expect to see one in the home opener, but here we are. It's just normal. <laughs> that was a super entertaining game of soccer. Like, I think if you watch that and you're a neutral, you're like, oh, cool. MLS is kind of awesome. And it, it was, you know, I kind of knew it was going to be a, a challenging game for the Timbers going into it. New England defending supporter shield champions set a record last year for the most number of points in the league. They basically just reloaded. They didn't really lose any major pieces. So it was always going to be challenging. And I think from the start, you saw a really competitive game. I think the level of play was, it felt like almost like a mid-season game for teams pushing for spots in the playoffs rather than just the first game of a season. The Timbers probably had a lot more question marks around their lineup. They had some key players out. Their starting center back pairing, Dario Zuparic and uh, Larry Smabiala, both out injured. They started two new center backs, including a player, uh, Zach McGraw, who was just having his third ever MLS start. So, you know, uh, Sebastian Blanco was still working his way back from fitness and he wasn't fit to start the game. Their leading goal scorer from last year, the Timbers leading goal scorer, Felipe Mora, was out hurt recovering from an off-season surgery. So a lot of question marks around. And I was mostly impressed with how the intensity level that the Timbers showed. New England took a one goal lead twice over the course of that game. The Timbers managed to battle back each time. And I think that speaks to the level of mentality that they have just for how they trusted each other. And the fact that even with these key pieces missing, they still have a lot of offensive power, firepower, and a lot of trust in the guys that were able to kind of step up and and step in, in those absences. And then, I mean, anytime you can tie a game, tie a game with a, you know, the goal of the week with like a a bicycle kick like that, like, you know, that's usually a good time. The, The funniest part of that goal was there was probably 
he probably could have collected that ball and also scored in a much less spectacular fashion. But I think Jimmy understood the moment. He understood that this is the home opener. I got to do something big. And then he, 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 uh, he wound up for, for that basketball. Like he was probably, I, I tweeted this on Twitter. I think he was sharing notes with Darren Espria and I think he maybe felt a little bit jealous. So he needed hit one of his own. Absolute Golazo. Wonder goal. Yeah. Definitely goal of the week and might end up being goal of the season by the time Crazy. we're all done. It's goal of the year in week one. Hey, I'll take it. <laughs> So we have a completely different LAFC squad that you're going to be facing this coming weekend. We have at least in one game seen about half of the lineup having changed over. We have a completely different tactical approach to the game. It is not as front footed as we are used to seeing from LAFC. They have sat back significantly more, at least in one versus Colorado. Obviously we had one preseason game at the very beginning of that a bunch of games we had to watch and then our, our first game of the season. So we're all sort of still figuring out what our own team is as well too. But the LAFC Portland matchups of late have been fairly one-sided in results, but the games have actually been much closer. And most LAFC fans feel that we let a few of them slip between our fingers by not having a team that was as complete as we view the current squad right now. But knowing that you're not going to be able to put nine guys behind the ball and just counterattack versus this current Chirondolo era team, what are you expecting to see from your Portland Timbers versus LAFC? And what, if anything, do you have to take from a one LAFC game into the season with this new LAFC 2.0 as it's been dubbed? Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I watched that game against Colorado last week and it was interesting to see kind of, LFC play in a slightly different style. You know, it's kind of like say, like the same bones of the system, but like definitely in a different kind of manner, kind of different kind of style. You know, like you said, right? Portland and LFC games are always entertaining. I think, yeah, but there was a couple of games last year where LFC probably deserved a little bit more than, than what they got. Um, that's just the way soccer breaks down. You know, I think historically going down to the Bank of California Stadium has always been a challenging trip for the Timbers. It's been tough for them to get positive results down there so you know like you said recently if there's anything i take away from you know the lfc game it's that carlos Vela is still pretty good um so the conversation for how the timbers match up well probably has to start with how well they're going to be managing him i mentioned this earlier but portland will still be rolling out you know basically their entirely second or third choice center back pairing with bill tuiloma and zach mcgraw zach mcgraw is young and relatively unproven in mls he had a good game last week against New England. He, he had the most clearances, the most tackles plus interceptions out of anybody on the field. He's going to have to be on his game again to track Carlos Vela. Carlos Vela is a different type of forward than he faced in, you know, either Gustavo Boo or Adam Buxa last week. So for, for this week, you know, how well the Timbers track Carlos Vela will say a lot for how well they're able to handle it. The fact that LAFC, I think, is, you know, maybe not pressing or counter-pressing maybe as much as they used to in seasons past makes an interesting question for the Timbers because you're right. The Timbers used to be able to sit back, absorb pressure, and then hit direct on the counterattack. It's a question as to how much they may be able to do that against LAFC in, in its current, like you said, the, the 2.0 kind of iteration. I think we saw against New England, especially in the second half from the Timbers, they really sought to try to control the play and try to emphasize quick passing and interchanges around the top of the box. That's how they like to attack, at least with the current personnel they have. I think that comes down to, you know, the performances of players you need to watch for is how well are Jimmy Chara and Santiago Moreno going to hook up? Uh, Moreno had a spectacular assist for Portland's opening goal last week. He's a young player. He's 
electrifying when he's on. The fact is how well can they get him integrated? Can they continue to get him into good spots? Can he find those spots at the top of the box where he really likes to operate and then find the players to interplay with? Can Jimmy Chara continue to be kind of like that more mobile playmaker? He's not really a traditional 10 in the sense he, he mostly seeks to interchange with the wingers and the forwards. How well they're able to do that, right? Like that will determine how much pressure they're able to ease off the back line will then be able to show, okay, can you actually control a game? Can you find stretches where you're actually able to dictate play, which Portland didn't do a ton over the past few seasons. Several races teams on the road like to emphasize counterattacking. How much they'll be allowed to do that, I think it's a question. So how will they respond? I think it'll be an interesting chess match to see when one team zigs, how the other one will zag and how they kind of respond to each other as the game progresses. I guess finally for you, the Western Conference this year seems like it is more unpredictable than it has been in many seasons past. We have Colorado, who ended up finishing top of the conference last year. You have the likes of Seattle, who seem to be perennially considered favorites to win the division. You have teams like Nashville that look very strong, the RSLs, the SKCs of the world that are hanging on. You have an LAFC team that always seems to be billed by the soccer minds as being a team that should compete for awards, but has obviously slipped up in our past season and failed to really advance well in the playoffs. And then who knows who's getting signed uh, uh, to finish their career down in Carson and and a couple other teams that are hanging on around this Western Conference early on in the season. What are your Western Conference predictions for come season's end? Oh, bloodbath everywhere. Everyone's cannibalizing each other. Nobody's going to win the Supporter Shield in the West. Um, that's how it's been for the past, you know, however long years since LAFC, I guess, won the Supporter Shield. Like, uh, it, it does feel very competitive. It does feel like there are those one or two teams that you're pretty confident, like, yeah, they're going to be pretty good. Like, Seattle... Yeah, they reloaded, managed to somehow sign Albert Rusnak, which is like, okay, cool. They're just as good as they were in the past if they stay healthy. Nashville looked good beating Seattle last week. Like, they're probably going to be tough to beat. Um, yeah, how well LAFC responds. I think outside of those top two, it's really kind of an open question between the next, you know, two through seven, eight teams, how, how they kind of finish up, who gets hot, who kind of, you know, finds form. Um, I think the Timbers demonstrated last year, through they had an unbeaten run through um, late summer, early fall in MLS to make the playoffs. You just got to have that couple months sustained run of, of really good form. And then you, you'll find yourself in pretty good spot for playoff positioning. I think in the West, you know, it'll probably be one of Seattle or Nashville, maybe Kansas city, if they can figure it out at the top, I, I would, I wouldn't be surprised to see LAFC pushing for like that next tier as well, especially if Carlos Fella keeps playing like he's playing and, he can continue to combine well and, you know, get some of those players healthy back for, for LAFC again. And I think, you know, I think a lot of people are counting out the Timbers just because it's still the same Timbers. They're like, oh, maybe they haven't done enough. Portland's basic kind of bet this season was the guys that we have can still be those dudes. And if they can't, we have two or three players bleeding in the wings that we've seen develop that can step in and fill that gap. And as of now, from the play that we've seen from Santiago Moreno, from the way that the central midfield keeps playing with Eric Williamson recovering from injury and coming back, even potentially as soon as this week, I heard a rumor that he might be up for minutes this weekend, which would be crazy coming off of an ACL injury last fall. The Timbers have players that on paper are talented and can make up that difference. I'm not saying that they're going to go out and win the supporters shield. I think probably around that like fourth, third kind of range in the West, same place they were last year is probably fair, but it's going to be a fight. Like there's really no easy outs in the Western conference this year. 
So, you know, any team that wants to have consistent success is going to have to be ready for a tough game basically every week. And with, you know, the extra wrinkle of more travel kind of thrown into it, who knows how that'll affect things and how well teams kind of rotate. So just as every MLS season goes, it's going to be a marathon and yeah, it might might be a bloodbath in the West. There might be a lot of teams cannibalizing each other as it goes on. You know, you had mentioned last season when we had had you on those six point matches, you know, these ones that really, really make or break teams runs in the playoffs. And it'll just be interesting to see how this all plays out because I, I agree that teams constantly taking points from each other in the West is not Uh, It makes for great football and entertainment, but it's not enjoyable as a fan when you sit here and you see points slipping away that uh, you absolutely need to continue to have a strong run. Yeah, it's it's crazy to say it's like, oh, yeah, six pointer game in week two of the season. But yeah, that's kind of how it is. I I think Portland and LAFC are kind of going to be occupying kind of like the same kind of like tiers, I guess, kind of in in the Western Conference kind of moving forward. So, yeah, it could be this could be a game that you look back on and be like, ooh only we had gotten like a tie or if only had gotten more points in the game it might be a difference in the season and it's tough too because you know how how informed are these teams right now too like Portland like you know Sebastian Blanco played only about eight minutes during the opener I would doubt he gets much more than that this this game as well he's still got to work back his fitness if he's not back out of an extended period of time where does that put kind of Portland's ceiling for these first kind of few months of the season I think another thing to, to just kind of consider is the fact that the season is slightly shorter this year as well with, I mean, same number of games, but with the playoffs coming in October versus in November, you know, there's not as much runway for teams to, you know, potentially have like do what Portland did where they floundered for most of March, April, May, most of the summer kind of started getting it together. I think, you know, you can't win the supporter shield or you can't make the playoffs in March and April, but you could definitely lose touch. So how well teams manage can like these early days to like, you know, you don't have to be the best team in the league probably, but how you keep touch with the rest of the playoff teams, I think will say a lot about mentality of teams and where you're positioning yourself for, you know, the stretch runs where it seems like everybody raises their game kind of as it goes forward. Real quick, before we let you go, we have the number one and number two ranked kits in the new 2022 yeah. kits. So <laughs> which one do you think was better executed is it the rose city or the five years strong Ooh, well i mean it's no i am biased (laughs) like i feel like i'd have all of portland on my back if i didn't say that heritage kit for the timbers um my opinion with kits is if you do something different if you make it interesting it's already a better one in mls because i feel like there's so many monochrome single color all of that kind of going on um i know you're your friends from Carson, I'm not the biggest fan of, of those jerseys, going to be honest. Just it's a white t-shirt, going to be honest, guys. <laughs> I think they're both great. It's kind of cool. I think I saw that they're going to be wearing their jerseys this, this next weekend. So it'll be cool to kind of see them kind of match up and on the field. I'm going to be definitely one of the prettiest kind of matchups. Yeah, that, that, that five-year kit for, for LAFC is impressive. Like I love just the subtle details that go into that as well. After seeing it on field, my biggest question with Portland's was how does it look on the field, right? Like it looks cool. And these pictures, how does it look on the field? I was impressed with how it looked on the field. It's really divisive amongst Timbers fans. Some say it looks really cool and interesting. Some say it looks like their grandma's drapes that they have on their, <laughs> have in their house. So um, I think it's, it has a story. It has a theme. I think it's interesting. I'm disappointed that they're wearing the white shorts with it next on Sunday, as opposed to the, those like crimson shorts, because it's not quite as good there. So maybe on the field, maybe the LAFC one looks a little bit more whole and put together than Portland's. We'll see. 
but I, I agree with you that I think two of them are definitely two of the best, I think, out of the new kits that came out this year. Well, thank you for filling us in on everything Timbers. We certainly appreciate it. Once again, our opponent correspondent for episode 109 has been Sam Spiller at Samich923, representing Stumptown Footy. Please give them a follow at Stumptown Footy. He writes for SB Nation in coverage of the Portland Timbers and Thorns. Sir, Sam, thank you so much for coming and joining us. We really appreciate it and look forward to talking to you later this year. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. I, I, I really enjoyed it. Nope, that didn't work. I tried it. Didn't work. <laughs> thanks for having me on again, guys. Much pleasure. We will be right back after this short break with the latter half of today's episode. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Alexis Guerreros. I'm the fat guy on the Cooligans. You're listening to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. And we're back. Fantastic stuff from Sam. Appreciate having him on the show. What a great guy. All right, guys, before we send everyone home, we have a couple other news and some news around Carlitos himself. Not only is there a contract being dangled in front of Carlitos himself, uh, he also found himself to be the MLS player of the week for week one and celebrated his birthday. So a very happy birthday to Charlie Candles from all of us at S2S. Congratulations on your first week hat trick and being named player of the week. Good stuff for Carlos. In addition to Carlos being named player of the week, there were also other LAFC players that were uh, added to that list of uh, MLS players of the week. I'm pulling it up right now just so that I don't get this incorrect. I believe it was also Elias Sanchez. And I think that there was one on the bench too. No, it was just congratulations. Yeah. Carlos and Elias Sanchez for being named to the MLS team of the week. So. Good job to both of them. Elias Sanchez had a fantastic game. We look like a completely different defense with him in front of our defenders. Mario and fall probably didn't have fantastic performances in this game. I don't know if I could point to either one of them and say I'd give them an eight or a nine on the day. They were certainly serviceable, but I think Sanchez makes both Fall and Mario look better. And I love that because when Fall and Mario are having to make up for a midfield ineptitude, we've seen the two of them exposed. But when they have a solid defensive mid in front of them in Sanchez, I think we look like a completely different team. And that is, of course, without Eddie Segura, who is still a couple weeks away from rejoining the squad. And obviously, outside backs this year, I mean, with Escobar alone, he looks so much better. Uh, and frankly, Palacios looked really good as well, too. Whether that's the combination of the people in front of him and next to him having less responsibilities dumped on him. But our entire back half of the field looked that much better. Before we go ahead and call this episode quits, there was one other piece of news that came down today. Uh, and speaking of our not-so-friendly neighbors south of us, it appears as though Sergio Ramos is going to be coming to Carson on a TAM deal. So I'm very curious what you think, if anything, is left in the oft-red-carded legs of Sergio Ramos heading down south of the city of Los Angeles. You know, I actually hadn't heard that, but I don't really see Sergio Ramos really coming to play in the MLS right now. I just, I don't, I, I understand, yes, he is definitely an older player, but, you know, he had just gotten to PSG this past offseason, and it's not like he's not getting time in Paris. I just don't necessarily see why he would choose to come to the MLS right now and it just seems like it's a far stretch well I know he's having issues getting into the team right regularly like he'd like 
and the rest of the league's trying to shake off this retirement league view uh, of the world or from the world, I should say. But I, the Galaxy is one of the spots where they they're, they're still have that model, and I think they're okay with that. It might be that they're willing to sacrifice selling jerseys versus trying to perform and make the playoffs and be competitive. So I wouldn't put it past them. I know that, you know, this is kind of what the Galaxy is known for. They're, they're about bringing stars in uh, versus making stars versus the comparison I would make with LAFC is that we bring in a star that still has plenty of years left. Um, the goal is to develop some players or bring some talented mid-career players that they're going to perform and be competitive every year. So is it a possibility? I wouldn't put it past them. I, I didn't, I didn't think that, you know, uh, Costa was going to be able to be in the galaxy. If you told me that last year, but who knows? Like, there's a lot of talented players that have had some success in Europe that are maybe over the hill in terms of being able to compete for a spot or get regular minutes. And if the galaxy want to give them a, a job and pay them then good for them. Yeah. Each team is allocated a little over $2 million in TAM, and I know this whole TAM-GAM thing gets really confusing, but TAM, target allocation money, is money that teams are given to go out and sign players above the luxury tax threshold, but they can use that money to buy the player's contract back under DP level. So currently, if a player makes like more than six, $700,000 a year, they have to either have that contract money purchased down with allocation money, or they have to be a designated player. And obviously, Carson already has three designated players. So the rumored $1.6, $1.7 million salary that Sergio Ramos is asking for would have to require $1 to $1.1 million worth of that target allocation money used to buy it back down. The disappointing thing about this is we have no idea at any point in time who's used what amount of their TAM target allocation money versus their GAM general allocation money, which is used for normal players, not those big players coming in at certain prices. So the whole thing is very confusing, and it somehow manages to always work in the Galaxy's benefit when it comes to getting players. Maybe that's just some really smart paperwork on their part. Maybe it's something more than that, but if they end up getting a player like Sergio Ramos, that is going to put a lot of eyes on them that will hopefully put people in the seats for them. If if that's what they think it's going to do. I'm not so convinced he solves the problem. That is the galaxy defense. The galaxy have a terrible defense. It's not good. And it did not get better from last year to this year. And it was not a good defense last year and why that wasn't the central focus of their off season astounds me to be honest i'm happy about it because it it means that i don't see the galaxy being a playoff team again this year and i don't see sergio ramos as being the type of player who is willing to excel to make up for the shortcomings of the defenders around him in fact that strikes me as something that would frustrate him and he does not play well when he's frustrated that's when he tends to get a lot of red cards something he is certainly known for is when he's having to compensate for the defensive ineptitude of those around him and looking at that carson defense there is a lot of ineptitude to go around now look i i know that they just beat nycfc and and they're the reigning mls cup champs but let's be honest had a center back not lost his footing and fallen over inside the box in the 90 plus minutes chicharito wouldn't have got that shot off that game would have ended nil nil and we'd be having a very different conversation about the status of both carson and nycfc at this point in time but their defender slipped 
Chicharito got the shot off. Good on him. He put it in. Carson comes away with the three points. And now it seems the entire narrative around that team has changed over one center back losing his footing. I'm just not convinced that Carson's defense is going to be able to stand up to a team like NYCFC if they aren't coming off of short rest on a grueling CCL match. And I think as the season goes on, that will be proven. I think it's also important to note after you had just made that talked about the position with no designated players and the amount of money that they would have to use in TAM and things like that. If Sergio Ramos really wants to come to the MLS, there are a bunch of teams that have available designated position spots available now. And, and I think that there would also be teams that would be better poised to actually have his services and be on a team where he, it's not, like he has to be this significant presence in the back line to make improvements in an area that has been questionable in previous seasons. So if he's really looking for an opportunity to play and to enjoy his time, you would think that he might look elsewhere besides the galaxy. By all accounts, it's already a done deal and that's where he's heading. There's a lot of smoke around it, whether the signature makes it across the line or not yet to be seen. Still a fascinating development if he does come and is going to add a little bit of spiciness to that next L.A. Derby if it is indeed featuring one Sergio Ramos. But uh, I still will take our chances in that game. I am not convinced that there is enough going on down there defensively to stop the likes of Arango and Vela if he is even the shadow of the Vela we saw in this first game. But uh, with that, that'll go ahead and bring us to the end of episode 109. We would like to thank you all for listening to Shoulder to Shoulder Podcast. Again, you can find us at LAFC S2S on all your social media platforms. If you'd like to reach out to us and be a guest on the show, we'd love to have you. On behalf of Chris, Christian, the legend, sound engineer, Wilton, and myself, thank you once again for listening. And with that, Take us home, sticks. Shoulder to shoulder. Together, this our culture. Feel the force of a supernova. Stay flying that FC Dorsum. Hey, shopping down to Nikki's Koreatown Liddy. Cape us so mommy, about to drop her fifth. They won't need to stop, but I ain't. Come to my house, I'll defend that bank.